Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Quick reminder before we get going today, if you guys have kids ages 8 to 19 and you have been worried about what you're going to do for education when you become an expat or a digital nomad, well, we have the solution. It's at expatschool.io. We have created an online high school for ages 8 to 19. We actually have a junior program, a middle school, and a high school. This is done in conjunction with my very good friend, Michael Strong. He was a guest on episode 115 of the podcast, and we became fast friends, and I've been working on this ever since. I am super passionate about this project. It is unbelievable, and we're going to be tackling a lot of the problems that are out there for expat and international families. So go to expatschool.io. You're going to be able to sign up free for our newsletter to stay abreast of what is happening. And if you have kids ages 8 to 19, then fill in the form. Let's sit down, have a call, discuss if it makes sense for your family. And if it does, we will invite your child to partake in the program. We are doing accredited and non-accredited programs. There is so much to be said on this. The full name of the program is Expat International School of Freedom and Entrepreneurship. So a big focus on freedom, a big focus on entrepreneurial ventures. And I'm just so excited about this. So, so excited. So go to expatschool.io and that's it. Let's jump into today's interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is the CEO of Midtown States, a short-term rental accommodation company which has successfully accommodated over 15,000 guests with excellent reviews from all over the world. He has traveled extensively throughout the world, visiting more than 70 countries and stayed in hundreds of different short-term rental accommodations. Please welcome to the show, Tim Hubbard. Tim, how are you? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me, Mikkel. Nice to be here. My pleasure. I'm really glad to have you here. You know, we were talking before the interview and we actually know a lot of similar people and we've had friends of yours and friends of mine on the show before. So I'm really excited about today's conversation. Why don't we start off by taking a minute and kind of tell me about your backstory. How did you get into short-term rentals? Where did you find your love of travel? I want to hear it all. Yeah, my love for travel came before real estate, actually. Real estate was sort of the outlet to be able to travel that I luckily discovered earlier on. So when I was in high school, I I did like a three-week, four-week exchange in the summer, and I stayed with a Spanish family and just had an amazing time. You know, everything was different, the language, the food, the culture, and and I was just like, I want to be able to do this 
all the time. So from an early age, I discovered travel. Luckily, I was 16. I turned 17 when I was there. And out of high school, I had a friend's uncle who was pretty heavy in real estate. And I saw the sort of lifestyle he was living and how a lot of it was passive. And that's what sparked my interest in real estate. So I started getting into real estate, went to college. After college, I was working for a sales job, but I also started working as a commercial broker at the same time. So, and just with investors, this was in Northern California when I used to live there. And so we worked with investors looking to buy mainly apartment buildings, but we also did shopping centers and land and warehouse and pretty much all types of real estate. So it was really, really good experience. I had started my own investing by that point. So I had some long-term rentals. I had also been traveling up into that point. So whenever I got a chance, I was going somewhere and staying in short-term rentals. And then one day it just kind of clicked. I'm like, gosh, I should try turning one of my long-term rentals into a short-term rental. And so I did that. And years later, I've been focusing on that. I still invest in other types of real estate, but I've really expanded my short-term rental portfolio into to other cities. And it's, it's been a fun journey. So what was that moment like when you actually went from long-term rentals to short-term rentals, especially if you're not in the city and you're somewhere else, you're being an expat, you're digital nomad or traveling. I mean, that's got to be quite an adjustment. So at the time I was actually living in the city. I'm not now, I'm down in Brazil and I've been expanding the portfolio for years now, not living in the US, but I had a roommate. I was living out in the suburbs and I had this property that I owned downtown and I was renovating it. I'm like, you know what? I want to, I want to live downtown. And so I'm going to renovate this property the way I wanted. It was a fourplex. And I was talking with my buddy. I kind of had the idea to do short-term rentals and we were like joking about it. We were drinking a beer. I'm like, man, I think this building could make like $20,000 a month if we, you know, if I, if I rent them all out as short-term rentals, it was almost like a joke, but I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try it out. I'm setting it up the way I want anyways. So I'm going to furnish it. If no one rents it, then I'm going to move in there anyway. So I put it up and it's been booked. <laughs> I still own that property today and it does make like nearly $20,000 a month from the four units. So that was the first one that I did. And that really helped me expand my portfolio or it, you know, it created way more net income. So maybe six or seven years ago, I started looking at other markets outside of California where I was living at the time. And so I've expanded into a lot in Tennessee and then some in Oklahoma, but I also moved out of the U.S. about six years ago, initially to Colombia. Now I spend about half the year in Colombia and half in Brazil. Okay. So do you own any short-term rentals in the new countries that you've been living in or in any of the countries that you've been traveling in, or you've just kept everything in the U.S.? So I focus on the U.S. I do own a property in Colombia and I do own a property here in Brazil, but they're kind of my personal residences. You know, I, I haven't rented them out. I know that they would make really good short-term rentals. And I have a lot of friends that have short-term rentals in the same area, but those have kind of reserved just for, just for me for now. So are you keeping them for yourselves just so that you can have a place to put your stuff and then you don't want people in your personal space or you, you're not sure if it's going to make money or you're not sure about the differences in the market or why did you make that decision? Yeah, no, I, I have got it set up like exactly the way I like 
to live basically, you know, I've got an office in each one and it's in a good location where I can walk to restaurants and stuff like that. And I guess I just have my personal things in there. So if I end up not spending time in either of these properties, I know they will make really good short-term rentals. So that was part of the initial decision. It was also to diversify outside of the dollar, you know, to get uh, some property and stuff and for the, the residency. So kind of plan B's. Well, we're a big fan of plan B at this show. That's for sure. How have you found with the inflation? I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Colombia. I've spent a lot of time in Brazil. We've seen both of the Hiai and the peso, the Colombian peso. Yeah, it's the Colombian peso to get devalued over the last few years. Has the real estate kept up with that? So when I purchased in Medellin in Colombia, that was in 2018. Uh, and that was at a point where the exchange was almost at like a historical high. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to take advantage of the strong dollar and get in. But since then, it's gone up like another 20% or something like that, you know, maybe more actually. So, but the value of the property has also gone up. So maybe, maybe it's a wash there. When I exchanged my funds here, where in Brazil, I kind of nailed it. I mean, it was like their historic high too, between the U.S., and the, the real Brazilian real, I think it, it was hitting like five, eight, and now it's at like four, seven. So I've kind of made, you know, 20% or whatever, if you look at it that way here, but who knows, those things are changing all the time, right? Well, it's pretty complex. And I think that a lot of people kind of miss the point on how the inflation works. It's like, yes, you can buy property overseas or you can transfer your money overseas. And yeah, if you're going to hold it in local currency, yeah, you have a big chance of massive, massive swings. If you put it into commercial or residential properties, chances are it's going to keep up with inflation. As long as you're going to be able to have a longer time horizon and hold it, you should be okay. I mean, that's no guarantee, but at least it's a tangible asset that's going to hold its value if you bought smart on the front end and you bought it in a location that people are still going to want to go to. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way about, I mean, it's an asset, just like you said, it's a hard asset. And in the US too, uh, you know, it's a good hedge against inflation, especially if we're leveraging with fixed debt at a low interest rate for a really long term. So. So is that one of the reasons that you do a lot more of the short-term rentals in the United States because you're able to get financing for these types of things? It is definitely. Yeah. If I could do the same financing in Colombia or Brazil or, or anywhere, well, not anywhere, but uh, you know, places that I like to be, then I would definitely focus more on those areas as well. But the financing, I mean, the historically low interest rates and the amount of capital available in the US is just, uh, it's, it's hard to beat. And the, the returns are, are really good in the US too. So, Well, I do get this all the time as well. People just kind of think that they're going to be able to get a mortgage as soon as they come in as a foreigner to a new country. And it's like, that just does not work the same at all. <laughs> I mean, maybe in right. Europe, you might, might be able to. But in Latin America, where I spend a lot of my time, I mean, even if you could get a mortgage, I mean, you're looking at probably eight, nine, 10%. And you might even need to hold it in a company and then the bank would have access to the company. I mean, there's just so many differences in there. It's just crazy. Yeah. And, and it's those eight, nine, 10, 12% interest rates while putting down 30, 40, 50% as well. So to be able to put down 20% in the US right now, you know, and, and get interest rates that are that are really, really low in the fives, or you know, they were lower. It's a pretty good time for that. 
Yeah, because we do a lot of it with the immigration. So say in Mexico, you can get short track to your permanent residency there. In Panama, you can get the new friendly nations visa at $200,000. In Brazil, it's about $200,000. In Colombia, it's about $160,000. And all the time, people are like, want to go for these visas and then kind of think that they can put 10 grand down or 20 grand down and finance the rest of it in country. And I'm like, you don't even have your residency yet. They don't know you from a hole in the wall. You don't have any relationship with the bank and you want them to lend you this. Like just, I just don't think it's going to (laughs) happen. Right. From what I've seen, I mean, you pretty much have to have like a solid stream of income coming into that country and have your residency and have, I mean, you have I don't have any friends that have purchased with loans. Yeah, it's not common at all. So tell me a little bit more than what is it like for you to manage short-term rentals and then not be in the city and not even be in the country? Yeah, so there's so many tools available now, you know, and every day there's there's more tools. So software programs, I use a ton of software programs and systems. There's two pieces to managing a short-term rental in terms of the team structure. Like we have all these things that we can do virtually, which is all the messaging. We can facilitate the check-ins and schedule the cleanings and do all that, but we have to have people on the ground. And that is our, those are our housekeepers and our maintenance. Uh, You don't necessarily need a manager on the ground. So you can manage everything remotely, but you still have to have that piece on the ground. So for me, it was just, I've got a great team that I work with that's on the ground. And then I also have a great team that I work with virtually. Most of my receptionists, a lot of my team is out of the Philippines. So all the virtual team for the most part. Yeah. If you use software like Upwork or those types of places that can do payroll for you, I mean... That simplifies things completely. I have a team of eight people who work for me and they're all virtual and they're all considered freelancers. It just helps with the payroll, with the taxes, with 101 different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, man, I I love both sides of my team, you know, on the ground and and virtually, but they they help with literally everything. And so managing the short-term rentals, we use a property management software, just like someone investing in long-term rentals could use, but it's specifically designed for short-term rentals. So it allows us to integrate multiple calendars. I rent my properties on Airbnb and VRBO and HomeAway. I've tried other sites. I also have my own direct booking website. So this software integrates all of those things. But then on top of that, we've got digital guidebooks that go out to our guests so they can pull them up on their phone. That's another piece of software. We have dynamic pricing. So the prices change every single day on every property based on demand in the area, seasonality and day of the week. So there's just lots of software. And of course, you know, I think the start to all this remote management was probably just the digital lock, you know, which, which has been around for a long time now. And that made it so we didn't have to pass keys and we could still get easy access to the guests and even maintenance people that need to come. So we take advantage of pretty much any techie uh, software that, that we can. All right. But you've been doing this for a long time. Think back or not even think back to when you started, because I guess a lot of the technology did not exist, but let's say that you had someone and you were going to help them set up their own portfolio today. What would be the software or what would be the first steps that they would want to do to help them scale in a good and responsible way? Things that are not going to get too complicated. Because I think with any type of business, you start building 
the different systems and the different processes and the different software, but it has to be a gradual process. So what would that look like? Yeah, I think it's it's great for someone starting out to manage the messages themselves for for you know it doesn't have to be a long time maybe just a month or a few months you know handle some reservations so that they know kind of how it works and also what their guests are looking for so I did that when I first started of course I'd also seen the other side a lot because I was staying in tons and tons of short term rentals all over the place so I think it's good to manage your first one and most people don't have any real problem managing, you know, one, two or three properties. It's when you start to get four five, six, you know, that's kind of one level. And then when you start getting dozens, that's like a totally different level. Right. So uh, it depends on how far you want to go with it, but I would start managing your first one yourself. And for me, that was what I did. And very quickly after I discovered some software, so they, they had great software available back then too. It just wasn't quite as advanced as it is now. And there's, there's so many more options, but I discovered some software that helped with the property management. It also had a receptionist service tacked onto it. So I was able to pay a percentage of my income to this company and they handled all the guest messages. That becomes the biggest piece that most people, I think, get deterred by or intimidated by. They're like, man, I've got a few units now and I'm getting a message on Friday night when I'm out at dinner. I don't want to do that. So outsourcing your messaging first, I think is one of the best things you can do to make sure you don't get intimidated to the point where you don't want to keep growing and adding properties and stuff. And so there, there's a, quite a few services available like that now, or you can hire your own virtual receptionist. You know, that's what I've done. Or you can hire a manager. The, the cool thing about a lot of short-term rentals is if you find the right properties and you set it up right. I like to get properties that used to be long-term rentals. So most properties I acquire have long-term tenants in it and I convert it over. And I try to get a property that's gonna have at least three times the short-term rent as it does a long-term rent. But that leaves a lot of margin to hire a manager if you just didn't wanna do anything, you know? So you can hire a professional manager. So you might wanna have like, it's almost like a Zen desk for short-term rentals then I assume. Yeah, most of the communication for short-term rentals is through messaging. You're not going to get a ton of phone calls. Really, the main time someone's going to call is if they've showed up to your property and they can't get in. And that's easy to make sure that doesn't happen, <laughs> right? But you know, sometimes it does or they're not working the lock right or something. That's when you're going to get a phone call. But aside from that, most people aren't going to call and say, hey, you know, what's your favorite restaurant? Or those are all things that you can send out messages or guidebooks. So there's not a ton of like verbal communication. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So then you mentioned that you like to take long-term rentals, purchase them and turn them into short-term rentals. So walk us through this process. What would you be looking for if you were looking at a new property to put in your portfolio? So I like small multifamily properties. So five units or more, but you know, multifamily, I guess anything duplex and up because it, it helps with economies of scale a little bit. If you have one housekeeper, housekeeping is the biggest operational piece. And if you have, let's just take a two houses in the same city that are 20 minutes apart and they're somewhat large homes really hard to clean both those at the same time on a Sunday, for example, when most people are checking out. So you have to have more housekeepers and that just makes the whole operational more difficult. So I like smaller units, apartment buildings, because I we can have one housekeeper that can do eight 
apartment turns in, in one day, you know, so it makes that part a lot easier. But I also like smaller apartments because people tend to stay longer. You might have someone that comes and and people are, are living on Airbnb. I, I know, you know, being an expat for a long time that like this is something we've been doing for a long time. But the rest of the world is doing this, too, even in the same countries where they're born. Airbnb's biggest growth segment right now is in their longer term stays. So people are actually living on Airbnb. And so I want to I want to cater to that. If I can get short term rents for a long term stay, then that's really great because operations are easier, the whole piece. So I like small units because people tend to stay longer. You also have less parties just simply because there's less people staying in the property. And I usually look for an area that is near basically from the, the moment I started at I was furnishing a property that was just how I wanted it after staying in a bunch of short-term rentals. And it was just in the area that I liked to be. So I could walk to cafes, I could walk to restaurants. So those are the type of properties I look for now. And a lot of times that happens to be in like a midtown area. So it's you know not super dense urban, but it's also not in the suburbs. And that does tend to come with higher property prices you know, if you're near restaurants and stuff like that, but there's definitely a lot of places where you can find properties that fit that model. And in a nutshell, that's what I look for. Do you ever stay at your own properties when you go back to the States? Yeah. I can imagine putting your, don't tell your staff and kind of do like an impromptu check or something. (laughs) The boss is here. What, like undercover boss or something like that? Yeah. Last year we were in Brazil for six months and we stayed in Airbnb the entire time. And it was like, two and a half months in one, and then two weeks in another one, and a month in another one, and a couple months in the last one. I want to do an entire blog article of just year-round living in Airbnb, because I think it's pretty interesting what you can do. And my son was born in Brazil. So the first place, like I said, I think it was about two and a half, maybe three months there. And when we would come home and we would go grocery shopping or anything like that, and we opened the door, I felt like I was at home. It wasn't my stuff on the walls. It wasn't my furniture. I didn't furnish it but it felt like home. And I didn't expect to feel that. Like, I mean, I've been using Airbnb for years and years and years, but I mean, a week here, a couple of days there, but never like months on end. But you can get some really nice places out there. Totally. Yeah, I know. I think that's the reason why it's grown so much in popularity. I mean, we, our guests are all age ranges. It's really great to see a lot of reviews sometimes from some of our older guests. They're like, this was the first Airbnb I've stayed in. You know, they've been staying in hotels their whole life. And they're like, we loved it. You know, we're going to come back because it's an, it's more of an experience and you can, you can feel like you're, you're living at home. So I, I always loved staying in them and it's, it's really fun now to be able to kind of sort of come like full circle, I guess. So one of the funny things when my wife and I were looking for Airbnbs, we'd be going through like 20 different properties. All right. We knew the neighborhood that we wanted to be in and we knew we wanted like a two or three bedroom, et cetera, et cetera. But then if they had like a really nice espresso machine or a Nespresso machine, we're like, that's the one I'm going for that. Cause I, (laughs) I needed to have good coffee in the morning. Coffee is important. Coffee is important for sure. Cool. So what else can you tell us about selecting properties? Do you normally go with bachelors, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms? What does it look like on that front? I mean, I'd say my favorite now. So first of all, I mean, you can do short-term rentals all across the board, right? You can rent a tree house now, or you can rent a 20 bedroom mansion on the side of the ocean. So you can make it work at all different levels. But for me and wanting to scale and in terms of management, I found that the smaller the units, 
the better. Because I, I have some properties that have multiple size units in the same building and I may rent the bigger ones as long-term. And I may rent the smaller ones. Almost always now I'm renting the smaller ones as, as um, short-term rentals. So I like because of the fact that people are staying longer in them, but still paying nightly rates. There's less parties. Uh, the actual return I've found is better too because you have less utility expenses. It costs less to furnish it. If you're renovating the property, it's a smaller unit, costs less to renovate it. So, and, and the difference between, let's say, let's take like a one bedroom that's 1200 square feet versus a studio that's 400 square feet. If you were renting those long-term, you would get a difference in rent quite a bit because someone would say, uh, 400 square foot is too small. But when you're renting a short-term rental, the actual size is not nearly as important. Most of the time, you don't know how big the unit is on the listing. And as long as you properly display it, I mean, and you're not like hiding the fact that it's small, it's not going to, you know, your guests are still going to ha have a good experience. So I think the difference between what you can get on the short-term rent and the long-term rent, it's a bigger gap between a studio and you know, like a, a one bedroom or a two bedroom, something like that. Well, I've seen with a lot of the short-term rentals that we've stayed in or the Airbnbs we've stayed in around the world that with the really small units, it's too small for my wife and I, or even if it's my wife and me and my kids, that is really too small. So even if it's just the pair of us going somewhere, then we always get a two bedroom or a three bedroom and we use one of the bedrooms as a closet because we've we're traveling with three or four pieces of luggage and we need to put our stuff out. I mean, I know at some of the places there was nowhere to hang up any clothes. There's no closets or anything like that. So we found having the extra bedroom was worthwhile just so that we didn't feel like we were on top of each other in these smaller places. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I, I think, you know, I, I've catered a lot to business travel and a lot of times they're traveling by themselves. So there, there is no significant other. And I know that has changed quite a lot because more of the world is work, working remotely than they ever have. But the cool thing is we can work remotely somewhere for like a month now. So if someone wants to check out a new city, they can, they can leave the West Coast and go to the East Coast and stay in an Airbnb for a month. So I still like to cater to, the, to that type of traveler. Not all my units are really small, but I've just found, I have found that the returns are, are better on those smaller units for the properties that I've been investing in. I think with my case, I do business travel, but because I'm not tied to one location, I bring my family with me and then I can still continue to work, but my wife can go shopping or take the kids to the park or something like that. And then I've got the Airbnb to myself for that day and can record some content or do my client meetings. You know, it becomes everything is work and everything is travel. You know, it, there's no clear defined lines anymore. And I think that this is a trend that's really going to continue as we see the remote work just blossoming over the last couple of years. Totally. Yeah. I always recommend, and all my properties have like a dedicated workspace. So sometimes that's not a full nother room, but at least it's a desk, you know, and a desk chair and stuff like that. And we always display, you know, our really fast Wi-Fi speeds. That's super important, right? So that's something someone's going to know right away. So yeah, having a workspace, if you have a short-term rental and it doesn't have a workspace right now, just put one in. Yeah, absolutely. Workspace, and that espresso machine. I'm telling you, these are the and types of things. Machine. Can't forget that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> these are literally yeah. the things that I'm looking at. I'm like, okay, bed, shower. Yeah, whatever. That's all to be expected. As long as it's clean and it's safe, then fine. I don't really care what it looks like, but I'm so 
focused on practicalities that that and I will absolutely pay more for those types of things. I just say that because if someone's listening to this episode and they're like, hmm, I think that I should set one of these up for myself. Well, it's like, well, what do people actually care about these days? Yeah, that changes depending on where you're at. So if, if you have a property that's on the ocean and it's historically been a very vacation friendly place, then you're going to want to set it up for a family vacation versus a property that's in the areas where I like to be like that sort of urban area that's not known for having the same family visit every week, every year, you know? So you really got to know what type of guests you think is going to stay in your short-term rental. And then that's going to help you design it and furnish it and set up your kind of parameters around it. So do you spend a bit of time in advance kind of thinking this through or writing it out? Like who is your attractive character? Who is it that you want this property to speak to? Like if, you made up a fictitious person, Bob, and Bob saw this property, this would be absolutely the place that he would want to stay. Do you do anything like that? Or maybe at this point, you just kind of already know how it should all work. Yeah, I pretty much am adding properties in the cities where I already am. But it's, it's funny because that person I was designing it for was me when I first started. <laughs> I mean, that was me. I, I had that property downtown. I'm like, this is how I want it designed. This is how I want it furnished. It's right next to this cafe. Uh, I was designing it for me and I'm a millennial and you know, we've, we're millennials value experiences a lot of times over like material things. I mean, if you want to generalize us and we live in a a much more mobile world than our parents did. And so I I designed that for me and uh, I just lucked out that I happened to be in the biggest demographic in the, in the U S you know, so that happened to work for a lot of other people as well. And that's still my primary avatar. We call them our guest avatar. Yeah, I think that these types of things are important. And with you, it worked out. And I'm also a millennial. I'm born in 83. So technically, I'm a millennial. I don't know if that is excellent advice for everybody. Because I can imagine some people might have really unique tastes and really different things that are super, super niche. And I think that niching down in certain aspects can be great. But in something like this maybe you'd need to really think things through on who are you trying to attract? Like you've mentioned twice in the episode that it cuts down on partying, you having long-term rentals. So that's clearly something that you don't want. And I can think of a thousand and one reasons why you would not want to have that. But maybe if you are huge into partying and drinking and going crazy and disco, 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 then maybe you might think, hey, this is what I want to build for my Airbnb and I should have a bar in there and I should have all these types of things. Well, then when you attract those types of people, is that who you want to be serving? Is that the type of clients? Do you want to be dealing with insurance claims? Do you want to be dealing with noise complaints from the neighbors or police coming at two o'clock in the morning because someone's dropped a bottle off of the balcony or I don't know. I mean, there's just so many things. So you really have to think this through on what type of person you want to attract. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's going to change changed by the market too. So like if we take Medellin, for example, lots of people come down and they have big parties in Medellin. And I know if you have a property in Medellin with a jacuzzi, 
for example, and you have one that doesn't have a jacuzzi, you're going to make a lot more money. People want a property with a jacuzzi. So it does also depend, I think, on your market. So if you already, for someone's listening, they already have a property that they're planning on turning into short-term rental, it's a really good idea just to view the competition around the area. So they can do that by going on Airbnb and finding like properties maybe that have the most reviews and have the most good reviews. Or there's some really good data tools now too. One's called airdna.co that just, that's what they do. They pull stats for the short-term rental industry and they provide information to some of the world's biggest real estate companies now. So they have like really good data and you can go on there. You can find the best ranked properties or the, the highest earning properties versus the worst performing properties. So that would be really good if you have a property already and you're considering it, because that would give you a good idea of how you probably would want to furnish it too. If you look at all the top performing properties in that area and they are not set up for a millennial that's got a workspace or anything like that, maybe they're totally different design or whatever it is, they all have pools, then if you're just going for the investment, you're probably going to want to follow the best performing units. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, definitely. And I can also see, like, I live in a huge apartment in Panama. It's 4,700 square feet. It's two stories. This would probably make the worst Airbnb ever. Like, you know, you saying like really small units. So that's, I think, another one of those things that you have to watch on what you would want to purchase for making investment opposed to what you might want to live in yourself. I mean, like you said, if you can make three times as much doing short-term rentals as long-term rentals, and that fits in this 400 square foot type of property, well, then absolutely that makes sense. So a lot to, to think about and to kind of analyze, I suppose, before you jump in. Okay, we'll just take a quick break. Recently, my really good friend Ollie Richards has released a whole set of new language programs under his Uncovered series. These are the exact programs that I use to go from really crummy Spanish to fluent in less than two years. My whole family uses these programs. We've watched a lot of his videos and learned from him and his methods. This guy speaks eight languages. So really, when you're learning from him and his system and his organization, you can trust that the methods really do work. Listen, if you guys want to be an expat, if you want to be a digital nomad, if you want to travel the world, then I think it is really important to learn the local languages of the country that you're going to be in. Not only do you get a richer experience from doing so, but it also shows a lot of respect. And honestly, it's a lot of fun. So even if you have done programs in the past and and think to yourself that you can't learn another language or you tried this in high school and it didn't work, I promise these programs that Ollie does are based on cutting-edge research and brand-new ways of doing this. So I really want you guys to take a look. All you have to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language, and you can check these courses out. They are well worth the money, and I fully endorse them. I hope you guys get a chance to check them out. expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language. Okay, let's jump back into the interview. There's also a risk factor behind all this too. Another reason why I like these multifamily properties and that I acquire them with long-term rentals is that I know if something changes in the market, the, the laws change, or it just gets crazy oversaturated, I can go back and rent these properties as a long-term rental and I still have a good investment. 
So it's like my ultimate backup plan. Now, if you're in a city that already has regulations set up, that helps protect you a lot. If you know you can get a permit, you know it's legal. That's a big way to you know eliminate risk versus going into a market that doesn't have any rules set up yet. The other thing is a lot of cities are, they don't count short-term rentals as a stay less than 30 days. So if you are in a city and they have restrictions, and you wanted to cater to people for 30 plus days, you wouldn't even have to deal with the uh, restrictions. You got to check with your city, but a lot of times you don't have to pay the additional transient occupancy tax either because it's not considered a short-term stay anymore, but you're still getting short-term daily rates. So the risk factor behind a lot of it is another thing that, that I look at. And I think that just came from my real estate background, You know, starting with traditional rentals and stuff like that. Okay. Well, talk to me then a little bit about the taxes and the insurance and other types of things that people might not understand if they want to go into the short-term rental market. So I guess, you know, the, the taxes are going to depend on where, where you're doing it at. But if we're talking about the USA, most all the taxes, that, the tax benefits that we have from investing in traditional real estate, we have the same with short-term rentals. Now, you got to check with your tax advisor, but my accountant who works specifically with real estate, we've worked together for a long time. She owns a bunch of property herself. She tells me that as long as you're not operating as a, as a business, so if you're not doing pickup and delivery from the airport and you're not providing wine and food and stuff like that, that it's still considered a rental. And so you can get around some additional taxes. So, so that's one thing. Another reason a, a lot of people in the U.S. try to be like a real estate professional in terms of the tax code, because it allows them to write off income from if they have a day job, for example, they can write off losses from their real estate against that income. And so there's a way to get that sort of designation. It's called material materially participating. And it's actually easier to get that designation than it is with long-term rentals. So there's different requirements and stuff like that. But for someone doing this as a side job, if they happen to be in the US, it's something really to look into because they might be able to save a lot on their taxes from their current job. Aside from that, you know, most cities and most places around the world are going to have some sort of transient occupancy tax. That's what you pay when you go to the hotel too. So only fair that it that we're paying it as well. Depending on the city, Airbnb, for example, has already set this up with a lot of big cities. So they take it out in advance. So it's not even something you have to do on your own. So yeah, the taxes are a really big piece to everything, right? Most people spend majority of their money on their living expenses and taxes, right? So if we can eliminate taxes. Hence why they listen to this show and we move them offshore and, <laughs> and help them get rid of all those taxes. Absolutely. Well, any other things from the regulatory side that people need to understand if they want to get into this? It's pretty easy now to check with a city if they have regulations that are against short-term rentals. I mean, you just pretty much just Google, but if that doesn't get you a clear answer, it's good just to call the city, you know, and these things are always changing, but I would say my recommendation would be, it's better to get into a city that already has some, something set up versus one that doesn't, because who knows, you could get your short-term rental set up. And then next week they say, oh, we're limiting short-term rentals to X amount of permits. And so it's, it's really different everywhere. And actually it's different in every neighborhood. Like I have some properties that are historic and they have different uh, zoning. And even though the city might allow short-term rentals, 
you got to check your specific neighborhood because it could be that your actual property has different regulations as well. Okay. Talk to me then about the furnishings for the place. Like, let's say, for example, you get a new multifamily, six doors. Are you furnishing all of the properties the same? Do you use that same type of economies of scale? Are you able to use, like someone wants to come in and they need a bigger unit and then you can just swap out pictures and stuff on the listings from one unit to another? What does it all look like on the furnishing side of these? So I definitely, you want to have, in regards to the pictures, you want to have pictures of the actual unit. But I guess I've kind of changed this as I've gone along. When I was furnishing stuff myself, I was really lazy about it. And I just ordered everything online and it showed up. And I had like a two-day scramble putting stuff together. And we still order a lot of stuff online. That's really easy to do now. Again, depending on where you're at, it's not easy to do that out side of the US in my experience. But I like to have, you know, if you're buying everything new and furniture is also one of those things where, I mean, you could spend $20,000 on a couch or you could spend a thousand dollars on a couch, right? So the budget for furniture really, really varies. And if someone has the time, they can go on places like Facebook marketplace and things like that and get secondhand furniture and really save a lot of money. So the price totally ranges, but if you buy everything brand new and you have it shipped there, you know, I was furnishing studios, of course, with inflation, everything's gone up quite a lot and also shipping time. So that's something you got to take a look at too. You don't want to get your place all set up and then realize that your couch isn't going to arrive for three months. But I would say, you know, I used to spend like six grand, 4,500 to six grand for a studio. This is all probably, this is going up now, but I also have a different team now. And my team on the ground is, they're really great at, they love furniture shopping too. So it's pretty cool. You know, we can, we can order like our base items, like our bed mattresses, which we can get really good mattresses offline now that come shipped in a box. We can get our, you know, a lot of the bigger pieces offline and then fill it in with something that doesn't make it feel like it just feels like Ikea, you know, or like fresh out of a box. So I, I would say like maybe 70% new stuff if, you know, we're just trying to get it furnished as quickly as possible and then try to fill it in with some local antique things, you know, or something from, from some nearby places. Something with a little bit of soul to it opposed to yeah. everything straight offline and shiny and the price tag still hanging from it. And Right. Everyone has the same Ikea picture. So if you've got the, <laughs> the red phone booth in London on your wall, it's like, you know, people have seen that a dozen times. So yeah, just add a little bit of character to it. People have experimented. There's just so many ways to do short-term rentals. Places that are designed, like styled, like I, I have a lot of properties in Memphis and a lot of people go there to see Elvis's house. And so we did one unit with a lot of Elvis flair and we had a different type of guests that went. They were they were older, you know, they traveled with families. So you can kind of design it to attract the type of guests that you want. Another reason I guess I like investing in these urban areas and bigger cities is I've chosen cities that are growing. So the population's growing, the employment's growing, and that all helps the demand equation. People moving to town. So my furniture setup isn't going to be as crucial as it would be in someone in another city that doesn't have a growing population because they have less demand. So the demand is a big thing. Well, that makes sense. 
Do you ever use an interior designer or do you design everything yourself for the layout and the look? Or do you go through magazines or something and rip out pictures? Like, what is that process? Yeah, when I first when I first started, so when I left out of California, I had furnished four units and I did those myself. And I actually realized that I really like interior design. I never thought I would getting into real estate, but it really does shape the way that we live. And if, if we had a plant in a room, it gives a different vibe to the room and it's going to give a different vibe to your guests too. So I really kind of enjoyed the furniture and interior design. And so I researched a lot, you know, apps like Hows, H-O-U-Z-Z is awesome. There's tons of good YouTube channels, read a lot of interior design books and experimented. So when I left California, I got this eight unit building and I turned them all into short-term rentals and it was a large renovation and I did them all pretty different. My personal favorite, I like, I like a modern design. And one of the units in this building, I did modern. This is an historic building. It's like over a hundred years old. So it's kind of cool. Like the outside's historic and then it has a totally modern inside. And that one did really well. But at the same time, I had historic units in that same building that did really well. So I think for me, that was just a demand thing. And then I sort of realized that. And now we're just meeting the demand, but our units do look nice. I mean, team does a great job. Yeah. I went on your website and looked through some of the photos. The places look gorgeous. There's no question about it. Oh, thanks. Thanks. So tell me any stories you have. Do you have any horror stories or guests that came to stay that were just absolute nightmares? I want to hear some of the dirt, some of the the, the negatives of being in this industry. So, <laughs> of course, yeah. We've accommodated over, I think, 20,000 guests now, so a lot. And we've had a lot of things happen. We've learned a lot. A lot of things that I know now would have probably prevented things in the past, but I can give you the most recent one. This one actually very recent. This first time it happened, but one of the guests was smelling something in a unit and we have housekeepers go in, they professionally clean and couldn't find where the smell was coming from. And it happened with two short-term guests. So, and the smell's getting worse, right? And our housekeeper, the last time she was in there, she cleaned it all. You know, we're checking around, checked like in the attic. There was no, we're thinking it's a rodent, right? Something's smelling and it's getting worse and we don't know where it is. So we checked everywhere you would think to check. Somehow a raccoon got in the inside of a wall. We're talking like a sizable raccoon, right? We had, I know where this is going. <laughs> cut the wall open. And it was like there was a body inside. This is this is very recent. A raccoon body. A raccoon body. Okay, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a raccoon body wasn't a. Uh, we did have. We've had someone try to commit suicide in a unit. Brutal. You know, a, a neighbor called in on that one. They they cut themselves and they went out front and luckily someone called and they didn't end up dying as far as we know, but a lot of things happen, you know, but that situation, for example, I was in Lithuania, I think on the other side of the world. And I woke up to a message and everything was handled already. Right. So if we have the right team in place, we have the right systems in place, things are going to happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a huge burden on us, just depending on how we have it set up. So Anybody ever destroy the apartment or have a party that got out of control? Or you hear these horror stories of people pouring concrete down the toilet or something like that. I don't know if that happens with short-term rentals, but I've heard of that happening with long-term rentals to get back at the owner or something. 
Uh, that's actually a good point right there is that anyone that stays in a short-term rental does not have landlord rights. If they, someone stayed in your property over a month, actually we get leases from everyone that stayed over a month, but if it's less than a month, they don't have landlord rights. And if they do something, if they break your rules, which is essentially breaking their rental agreement, their contract, then you can have them removed from the property. So in most places it's like that. So that's actually another kind of side benefit because I've had long-term rentals an eviction, for example, where someone just wasn't paying, but oh, couldn't get them out because of the rules and, and stuff like that. So yeah, we have had parties. I think the worst it got was right during COVID because we used to never accept guests that lived in the same city. Well, we tried not to. So because usually they're coming there to do something that they maybe didn't want to do in their own property or have a party or something like that. So we used to not really accept a lot of local guests, but when COVID happened, no one was traveling anywhere. So those were basically our only options. So that coupled with lowered prices, because we lowered our prices to try to attract people to, it brought in a guest that wasn't ideal, I'll just say. And so we did have quite a few parties, but you know, we learned a lot from it too. And there's, there's a lot of things you can do to prevent parties. Now they have noise detectors that you can put in a unit. It doesn't record someone's voice, but it records the decibel. You can link that with property management software. So it automatically sends your guest a text message if they're speaking too loudly after a certain time of the night, for example. They have devices that can monitor marijuana smoke. I have properties in California and it's legal. Marijuana is legal there now. So when that first happened, a lot of people thought they could just smoke wherever they wanted. So they have devices for that. And an easy way, probably the easiest way to combat any party is just to make sure you have an exterior camera that shows your entry door and you can see how many people go in the property. So if your property is only for four people and 20 people show up, you can call them. And if it gets too out of hand, you can call, you know, law enforcement, you can have them removed. So luckily those things don't happen that often. If you have all the right measures in place, I've never really had a unit that was like, We've had a lot of people packed in a unit before we caught on to it, but you know, some smaller damage, like maybe a hole in the drywall, or we've had a TV stolen before, you know, small little things, but nothing that would deter me from not investing in short-term rentals because they're just making so much more than the long-term rentals. So that was kind of a long answer, I guess, wasn't that? <laughs> no, it's a great answer. I like the long answer. I mean, if you've had over 20,000 and that's kind of, the worst that happened, the suicide one, that's rough. Like that's, that's really sad. But I mean, on the damage front, if you've only had a couple of holes in the wall or some small damage, that's actually okay. That's pretty positive. You could say, talk to me then about like the, the screening process. Do you like really look at the person's profile before you accept them to rent the place from you? So depending on where you're renting your property on, so if you're renting on Airbnb, they have some of their own built-in measures, but each of the online travel agencies, the OTAs, we call them, places where you can list your property are going to have slightly different ways of regulating that. Airbnb has you know, some options where you can require government ID. You can require that they have positive reviews. So if you're not comfortable renting to someone that doesn't have any reviews, you can set it so that they can't book your place. You can require deposits. So we do that. Our receptionists have like a set of their own stuff that they go through when we do get a reservation. Most all of our reservations just happen instantly. They're instantly booked, right? Like 80% or more of them. So it's like a pre-approval. Someone makes an, a request to stay at the place and it automatically goes through? 
Well, you can choose if you want your property, if you want your guests to have the ability to reserve it without requesting to reserve or if they need to request first. So you can choose that on Airbnb and most all the sites. So if you have a property you're somewhat concerned with, or maybe it's like a, you know, a giant vacation home and it needs to be planned out, then you might want to consider having every guest request first. And then you can ask them why you come into town, you know, what brings you here, so on and so on. But most of ours are instantly booked. And so our receptionists have like a backend thing, you know, they'll check the guest reviews to make sure that there wasn't one that's a little fishy. We always ask why someone's coming into town if they don't respond to us. Another thing is like if someone books, if you do have like a, a property for eight people, for example, and one person books it, eh, it looks a little weird, right? So we might ask like, hey, we noticed that you reserved an eight bedroom home, but you only have yourself. Can you please list the other guests? stuff like that. And then if you start getting fishy responses, you can involve Airbnb and just have the reservation canceled if you feel unsafe about it. So there's ways to just stop the reservations before they happen. Yeah. Cause I think when I do Airbnb overseas, I've always had to make a request and then four hours or eight hours later, they approve the request. So I'm kind of, I was just kind of curious if they're actually going through and looking at my profile picture and stuff. And I can imagine people putting really weird and random stuff in there. So that's kind of interesting, I should say. Yeah. I found most properties outside of the U.S. still have a request option, depending on the city, you know, not like in South America, for example, right. Where I spend a lot of time too, like down here in this city where I am, their Airbnb game is like, just like, doesn't exist. There's a few rentals here, but they're just kind of not super serious about it. And so a lot of the properties in South America, anyways, I've seen that you still have to request a book, but most of the properties in the U S you can instantly book. Okay. So when I was doing my research on you, I saw that you were actually doing a big project in Medellin, Colombia. What does that look like? Tell me about that experience or, or what you have planned. I'm very curious. Yeah. So Medellin was the first place that I lived outside of the US. And that, that was after traveling to lots and lots of countries and, and living in a lot of different cities. So I sort of just fell in love with Medellin personally, but I realized it had a really good real estate market too, or there was a lot of opportunity there. Of course, we don't have the financing options available for foreigners like we were kind of talking about earlier, but I've spent a lot of time down there now. You know, it's probably been seven years or so, and I'm, I'm a real estate guy. So I've always got my ears open for stuff like this. And a really good friend of mine just finished a development on an 11 story apartment building. He just took it on himself and he just finished all the short-term rentals. And it's crushing it. And so he's looking for another project. And I was looking to get into something like that too. So we, the last nine months have been shopping for lots and in Medellin specifically, it's in a valley and it's very well built out already. There's 4 million people in this, in this valley. So it's a very well built out to limited land space, right? And a lot of these lots are, are going or have have gone already. So we've negotiated with quite a few different owners for lots, most of them, which already have 
homes on them, which we'd have to tear down. And the one we're in negotiations for now, it's still early on, but fingers crossed. I think, I think we've got something together. It's three homes, three different lots that we'll be tearing down. And it happens to be in a zone in Medellin that allows for really big development. So this particular area allows for 22 floors, 102 apartments and a really big space. And the city wants this here. This, this specific neighborhood is zoned this way. And they're actually pretty advanced in that regard. Like you can go online and you can see the zoning in different neighborhoods, depending on where you're at in Medellin. So we've met with the city quite a few times just to verify that we can actually do that because there's quite a bit of risk on our part in the beginning. You know, we're, we're investing a lot of money, cash to buy these homes, which we'll have to tear down. It's going to take us nine months easily to a year to get all of our studies together and architectural plans and everything like that. But once we have that, we'll be back past quite a bit of risk and we can start development. So that's really exciting. You know, the plan is that there'll be a lot of individual apartments and they'll be at a pretty good entry-level price, an amazing area. The apartment that I own right now is just a couple blocks from there. And so we'll be able to sell each unit individually. The owners will be able to hold title in their name. So a lot of projects right now in Medellin anyways, people are buying percentage shares of an investment and that's different. Uh, and that's also different for your residency potential and stuff like that. You know, you got to, these things are changing all the time, but this would allow for residency based on today's numbers too. So really exciting project. And at the end of the day, we will hold, oh, it's also zoned for short-term rentals, which is huge. And actually a lot of the properties in Medellin are not zoned for that. They either have to have a majority vote in the building, which I think like 70% or more to be able to operate a short-term rental. And a lot of these buildings have Colombians that have been living there for a long time. They don't want people coming in and out all the time. Either that or it has to have the actual license to operate as a short-term rental. And there's not a lot of them. So if you have a short-term rental in Medellin right now, I think, you know, it's, it can rent very easily. We're also seeing a big demand. It's, it's on central time. So it's easier for people to work from there, from the U.S. And it's one of my favorite cities in the world. I think it's a really cool project. I know if this one doesn't end up working out, we're going to, we're going to do something, but uh, I think we're pretty close to, to signing, signing some papers. So. Well, I was in Medellin first time about 20 years ago, but then hadn't been there for 20 years. And just last November, I went to visit my very good friend, Marco Wutzer, who I believe you know as well. And Medellin is an incredible city. Like I was just blown away of the development over the last 20 years and so many little nooks and crannies and cool restaurants and cafes. And just the vibe of the whole place is just fantastic. I just loved it there. It is. It's gosh, it's just really changed. It was, it was amazing. You know, the, the first time I went there and it just gets better. And another thing with, with a place like that too, is like some of my best friends are managing like, like Marco. Yeah. I met, I met him there and we met down here in Brazil recently. And there's such a cool community of people that have also realized like, Hey, this city is amazing. The cost of living is amazing as well. And it's not that far from the U.S. People are really nice. The weather, you know, they call it the city of eternal spring. So it doesn't get super, super hot there. It doesn't get cold. Everything's green. It's just, it's just a lovely place. So, well, I'll be really interested to follow this project and see how it progresses over the next, what, two, three years, the building and everything. And that's pretty neat how you're going to actually be offering it to other investors 
And if you structure the pricing correctly, then they can actually get the residency on the back end of it. And Colombian residency does lead to citizenship. So there are a lot of attractive qualities about that. Totally. Yeah. My apartment that I have several blocks away. Yeah. That was one of the main reasons I made sure that I was above that price level to be able to get mine. And so it's, it's really nice to have a visa or residency to, to go to your property, not have to worry. You don't have to get a return flight when you go visit, you know, that they might ask you for at the airport. Columbia's really got a lot going for it. Brilliant. I love it. Tim, thank you so much for today's conversation. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to reach out to you, where can we send them? Yes, I have a podcast as well, actually, that we have had for a little over a couple of years. It's it's for people interested in short-term rentals or real estate in general, although it's a heavy focus on short-term rentals. It's called Short-Term Rental Riches. And they're basically just quick, actionable ideas and tips for someone interested or that already has a short-term rental, five to 15-minute episodes. So they can find me there. Or We've got a lot of resources at restmethods.com, You know the software I use and a guide on what I look for and properties and stuff like that that people can access for free too. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time, Tim. And I'll talk to you soon, okay? Yep. Thanks for having me on. I hope you guys got a lot of value out of today's interview. Make sure you guys check out my friend Sven Lawrence's work at Undervalued Shares. I really love the work that he's doing. If you guys are interested in the stock markets, in equity investments, then it's really helpful to have a trusted source to get your information from. Now, he runs a product called The Weekly Dispatch. It's completely free to join, and I highly encourage you do. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash undervalued, and you'll be able to sign up. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash undervalued, all one word, and sign up for free. He also has a paid newsletter, which I think is $49 a month, and then a lifetime membership. I am a lifetime member, and I love his work. Every single month, I get a special research report. I go through it. If it makes sense, then I look at investing in those companies. He has a really worldview. He's an expat himself. He's traveled extensively, and I just love his work, and I think you guys will too. So all you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash undervalued and check it out. Okay, have a great week, and I will see you next Wednesday. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. 
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.